Let's begin this morning by just admitting we all know what day it is. It's November 1st. We all know that in two days there's going to be something very consequential happening in our, in our country, an election, and we live in a polarized time. Does anybody else feel this polarization? Right. And now this morning what I want to do is I want to share my unfiltered opinions, right? I want to share them because I believe that one candidate, one representative representing large swaths of people, I believe that if that candidate is endorsed, if that representative is chosen, then it will mean the demise not only of America, but the souls of countless people everywhere. And I don't think the stakes have ever been higher because on the converse, I believe that we also view this other candidate, this better representative, and I believe if we follow him, then it will result in freedom and liberation and the flourishing of life. And I am convinced and certain of that, that these two representatives symbolize the very heart and soul of where we want to go as a people and as individuals. So with that, where do we want to go? Toward a destructive agenda or toward an agenda of life and freedom and liberty? And I think Paul actually highlights this great contrast of these two representatives in no clearer place than in Romans. We've been studying Romans now for a number of weeks. And one of the great ways to drive home a point is to set things in opposition, set them in contrast, right? So black and white, darkness, light, antagonist, protagonist, maleficent, and sleeping beauty. If you want to drive home a point, you put them in contrast with one another. And I believe the contrast between these two representatives are shown in no better place than our text this morning. So on November 1st, I think it's vital to have this discussion of these two representatives. Do you know the representatives I'm talking about? Adam and Jesus. Adam and Jesus. And now some of you are like, wait, come on, you're going to give the political sermon. Why don't you do that? And hey, I have to say, I believe politics are important. In fact, I believe they're so important that I voted. I voted for one of the major party candidates. I voted for a state senator, and I voted on all the ballot measures that were on the ballot this year. But second thing that I have to point out is that as important as this election is, and it is important, as important as it is, and as important as the direction of the United States is, on November 4th, the day after the election, yes, we'll have a president-elect a new president-elect or four more years of an incumbent. But on November 4th, the question of the two representatives outlined in Romans chapter 5 will still be up for our consideration. They will still remain. And this deep polarization that we feel politically is actually much deeper spiritually because the representative who will represent us as president in four or eight years compares nothing to these two representatives who will represent us in eternity. They will represent us in, to eternity. So I believe the contrast is stark. And that's what Paul's done throughout Romans, right? He's given us a number of contrasts. It's the contrast between the good news and the bad news. Contrast between condemnation for sin and justification in Jesus. The contrast between Jew and Gentile, religious people and unreligious people. And here in Romans 5, what Paul does is he zooms out from those particular contrasts to a much greater contrast that sweeps over all of humanity and all of the Bible. This contrast between Jesus and Adam saying, you will find yourself in one of these two distinct camps, one of these two parties. 
So our outline this morning is twofold, right? We're going to look at sin and death that is assured us in Adam. Sin and death in Adam. And secondly, we're going to look at grace and life offered in Jesus. So those are our two points. You can either be in Adam or in Jesus. With that, let's look at our text this morning. It's Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to follow along in your Bible so you can see it as a whole, or you can follow it on the screen behind me if you don't. This is the Word of God. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by that one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, great grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So we have two points this morning. Sin and death in Adam and grace and life in Jesus. Beginning on that first point, sin and death in Adam, we see that clearly highlighted in verse 12 here. In verse 12, Paul begins this section of Romans really concluding everything that's went before it. He concludes it by saying, therefore, right, great conclusion, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, Paul here is trying to do two things in this beginning of his conclusion. First, he's trying to answer the question of, we have this good creation that God made. How on earth has it gotten the way that it has? How on earth has the good creation and life of God's creation led to death and destruction? And Paul answers that by giving us this chain of events. He gives us this chain of events saying, in Adam, sin entered the world. And through sin... Death entered the world. And this chain of sequences, Paul is saying, Adam brought forth sin, and sin brought forth death, and that's why we see death and destruction in God's good world. It all started with this one man. But the second thing he wants to point out, which I think is much more significant, is that Paul says something extremely interesting. He says that in Adam all sinned. Do you see that? It's the last word in there. All sinned. And the reason that's interesting is because that's a past tense verb. That means what he's trying to get at is that in Adam's sin, the first sin, his eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we all sinned. We all sinned in Adam's first sin. If we're in him, then his sin is counted to us. And that's worth restating. 
Because listen to what I'm saying. What this is saying is that Paul is saying, hey, we're, it's not like we're like Adam. We, we sin like Adam and therefore we receive death as a consequence. That's not what he's saying. No, he's saying we are in Adam. Meaning when Adam sinned, we all became sinners and we all sinned in him, past tense. In other words, when Adam sinned against God, it was as if we were all there with him, sinning with him. And, and we know that's the case because if you're looking in your Bible, notice how the end of verse 12 ends in a dash. All translations do this. The ESV, NIV, NASB, RSV, and NKJV all end it with a dash. That's because Paul stops his thought and he says, hold on, I'm going to unpack something else really quick. And then in verse 18, he picks the thought back up. He says, therefore, again. Notice what he says, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so now one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So you see what Paul's saying here is that in Genesis 3, Adam was not acting for himself alone. He was only, not only acting as an individual, he was acting as a representative for all humankind that would descend from him. And in the Bible, they, they term this as a covenant mediator. Adam was our first covenant mediator, which means that in this covenant, he was representing all people that would descend from him. And we see these covenants throughout the Bible who mediate our relationship with God. So, for instance, there's priests. Priests' main job is to make sacrifices to God in place of the people. They mediate the people's relationship with God. Or with prophets, right? Prophets do this as well. Prophets take the message of God and they mediate it to humankind so that we can hear it. And what the Bible is saying is that Adam was our first covenant mediator. He was our first representative. And everything that he did would physically and judicially represent us all. You can kind of think of this like a family tree, okay? You have a grandpa who's the head of this family tree, and this grandpa has male pattern baldness. That means all of his descendants who are males are going to have male pattern baldness, right? What he does affects people who are down in his genealogy. And the interesting thing is that this isn't just the Bible that mentions these things. Behavioral psychologists actually are seeing that the actions and the, uh, the, the, the things that people do in our ancestry deeply and profoundly affect who we are as people today. So for instance, alcoholism, if prevalent in a grandparent or great-grandparent or a father or a mother, the likelihood of a child then becoming dependent on alcohol is exponentially higher than other people who are not in families that struggle with alcohol. The same thing happens with victims of abuse. Victims of abuse are at a much higher likelihood to perform abusive acts themselves. Same thing with divorce. That if there's divorce in a family, there's a, just a greater likelihood that those families will experience divorce. And what this is getting at is that there are things that people did before us that affect us profoundly today. And I, I know this personally. On my maternal grandmother's side, our genetics have this condition called Fragile X. Fragile X is on the spectrum, right? So it's this uh, genetic disorder that leads to mental disabilities. So when me and my wife were first 
determining whether or not we wanted to have kids and determining when we wanted to have our kids, we went and visited with a genetic doctor to see, hey, could this affect our children? Could it affect our family? Because we realized our ancestry and our heritage deeply impact our lives today. And to teach kind of the ripple effects of sin in the world, the Puritans used to have this great book. You know, it was an ABC book to teach children. And today we have like Dr. Seuss's ABCs, right? A, A, what begins with A, Annie's Alligator, A, A, A. That's a pretty good book, right? Pretty catchy. The Puritans had one the same way, but it was A represents Adam. And the subtext was, in Adam's fall, sinned we all. That's a New York Times bestseller right there. But it was trying to get at, right, this point that we all experience the ripple effects of Adam's sin, that what he did then affects us now. And theologians have a term for this. It's termed original sin. Original sin. This teaching that the Bible shows us everywhere that because of Adam's first sin, we are born, simply stated, guilty and sinful because of his sin. That's what original sin is. It means that we are all born into this world, not as morally neutral, not as morally good, but we are born guilty and corrupt, guilty and sinful. And we see that in these verses, right? So in verse 18, Paul mentions this explicitly. He says the one man's action has an effect on our legal status before God. He says, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So what he's getting at is that in Adam's sin, we are now all condemned. We're all born guilty. We're all actually under the punishment of God, not because of anything we've done, but because of the one man's sin. So we're born in this world guilty. And he adds to this, verse 19, he says, and he says, and the free, sorry, here it is. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So not only is our legal status affected with God, being been born guilty of Adam's sin, but our nature is affected as well. We are not just people who do sinful things. We actually, at our core, are sinners, affected in our very DNA with corrupt natures that have been twisted and distorted and refashioned by Adam's sin, even down to the molecular level. So see, because of Adam's sin, we only not commit sins ourselves, but we are, in fact, sinners. I think D.A. Carson, he's a thinker on these topics. He's written over 25 books. He's a prominent scholar. He talks about how sin is so radically different from how we talk about it today. He said, sin in the Bible including the sin of Adam, is often personified to show how serious it is. Just in Romans, Paul says, sin enters, sin produces death, sin reigns, sin can be obeyed, sin pays wages, sin seizes opportunities, sin deceives, sin kills. And what we're left with is a picture of sin, not as the breaking of an individual rule, sin as in, oops, missed that one, but we see sin as a power and reigning authority that controls, contaminates, destroys, and deceives, sin is powerfully personified. And, he says, quote, at its essence, sin is about the de-godding of God. Sin at its essence is about the de-godding of God. What Carson is pointing out there is that in the sin of Adam and Eve, when sin entered the world, Adam and Eve didn't just make a wrong dietary choice. Hey, I prefer that fruit over that fruit. Now, when he took from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, what happened was 
they took God off of the throne, out of the center of the universe, out of the position of authority and worship that he deserves, and they, in effect, said to him, I think I should have that role. I think that I should be at the center of the universe. Even though, God, you're the creator, I'm the creation, this equation's upside down. We should be in the place of you. And that fundamental characteristic of our corrupt, sinful human nature in Adam, this tendency to de-God God, shows up in all of our lives. We, at our core, want to de-God God. And now, some of you might say, well, no, I don't want the spotlight. I don't want to be the center of attention. I don't want to be, you know, the main actor in this play. One pastor, he put it really brilliantly. He said, well, to, to kind of prove the opposite, to think about your graduating class photo, okay? So it's, it's your graduating class. You got, you know, all of your class of 1982 from Pomona High School, and there it is. And when you break that out, whose eye do you go to first? Whose picture do you look at first? Who's the one person you're looking for in that photo? It's yourself, right? You want to see where I'm at? He put it in another great uh, example. He said, when you're having an argument, say with your spouse, I mean, it's a really bad argument. And you're just convinced that you won that argument, but, you know, it feels like nobody won. So you get in your car and you're driving away and you're thinking, oh, if I would have just said that and I would have said that, then I totally would have had her in her place and I would have been in the right, she would have been in the wrong. He says, think about it. Who always wins that argument? It's always you, isn't it? You always win that argument. He went on to say, he said, I've lost a lot of arguments and a lot of fights in my life, but I've never lost a rerun. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Now, we are self-centered, right? We do want to be God of our own lives and God of the universe. In fact, to prove it, do you know what the most rapidly growing book genre since the 1970s is? Self-help. Self-help. In 2016, the greatest selling Christian book was a book entitled The Road Back to You, A Journey to Self-Discovery. And we have kids, right? When our kids, they say, Dad, I want to trick-or-treat longer. Dad, I want more candy than you, you let me have after trick-or-treating. Dad, I want to stay up later. What do we say to them? We say, hey, Eli, the world doesn't revolve around you. It's because we're all born, right, thinking that, in fact, the world does revolve around us. Isn't that right? I like what C.S. Lewis has to say about this. C.S. Lewis said the greatest barrier he had to becoming a Christian was that this idea that he had to put God in the center of the universe, that God should be the object of worship and adoration. We should seek what to do from God. He said, how self-centered is God? How self-centered and how insecure is God that he needs our adoration and our worship? And it's really odd, isn't it, that what should be so natural to us, namely the worship and honor of God, should seem so deeply unnatural to us, so much so that it would be the greatest barrier that we have to cross in order to believe in God. See, because of our corrupt nature, right, we don't hesitate to honor a great athlete who excels at his sport. We don't stop congratulating a New York Times bestselling author when she writes her first great novel. And we don't seem to you know, have problems supporting a candidate who has sound policy ideas, but honoring, praising, congratulating, and giving thanks to God somehow seems out of place. It seems like a major barrier that we have to overcome. And the reason for that is because of original sin, because we're born with a corrupt nature which is bent on de-godding God and putting ourselves in, the pl in his place. And here's the thing. This isn't just Paul who says this, right? Paul is only making straightforward and clear what the Old Testament is kind of hinting at and gesturing at. 
So the first place that you see this so explicitly is in Genesis chapter 5. This is after the fall of sin, and we're presented with a genealogy. And it's so interesting what's said. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. That's very important. He made them in the likeness and image of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. It's his image that's imprinted on all of his descendants. And the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So what happened to Seth? All the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 11, Seth begets Enosh, and Enosh, his days were 905 years, and he died. Then verse 14, the sons of Kenan, Kenan was 910 years, and he died. See, the ripple effects of Adam's sin can be seen here. Adam brought forth sin, which brought forth death. Our once good nature created in the image and likeness of God, made for life, is now corrupted. And the only thing that we can produce is death and spiritual decay. And remember in Genesis chapter 1, right, God's creating things. He says, create light and darkness. And he saw what he had made, and it was good. And then he created the ocean and the sky, and he looked, he saw them, and he said it was good. Do you know the next time the Bible mentions that God saw something? It comes in Genesis chapter 6, right before the flood. Notice what God sees. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So do you see, original sin is not original to Paul. The whole of God's story and all of human history points to this fact that we have a deeply embedded problem, the problem of original sin. And now somebody might say, well, what about Noah? Noah was a good guy. Noah trusted God. He was righteous, and that's why God saved him. What about him? He wasn't impure. He wasn't unrighteous. Well, after the flood account, right, after God brings judgment and a flood on the earth, we're told that Adam steps out, or sorry, Noah steps out of the ark and Noah makes an offering to God. And then we read, after the flood, God smelled the pleasing aroma, this offering. And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Who's the only person around? Noah. Who has an evil heart? Noah. Who has original sin? Noah. Noah wasn't saved because he was a righteous and good man. No, he was saved by the strict and mere mercy of God on Noah and his family. My kids and I, we read this Noah book before we go to bed. And it's a really good book, actually. It's like great illustrations, and I love it. It's a a phenomenal book. But you start reading it, and it says... Now God looked on the earth and saw that it was full of wickedness, and God wanted to punish the world because of its wickedness. But Noah was a good and righteous man, and he trusted in God. And at that point, I say, okay, hold on, guys. Hold on, Eli and Laney. You know, that isn't true. 
I want to tell you that's not true. You know, Noah was a wicked man just like everyone else. He sinned. He was a descendant of Adam. And I say, he was a sinner just like you and me. He was born sinful. He was born guilty based on his covenant relationship with Adam and who is as his representative and his covenant mediator. Therefore, as you can see, through, though the intentions of this book are good, they're actually a little bit misled and they don't really reflect the fundamental nature of man. And because of that, you really have to keep that in mind as you read throughout the rest of the story that you have to know that Noah actually was a wicked man. And for that reason, I really want you to know that if he's your representative, then you're in real bad trouble. And then my son Eli's like, Mom, will you come read to us, please? <laughs> you know, we can kind of read these passages, Romans, Genesis, and we can look at these passages about original sin, and we can try and escape the plain meaning, right? Put them in child book form to make us feel better. But in reality, guys, if we are going to try and escape the plain meaning, that's exactly what we're doing. We're trying to escape the plain meaning. And the plain meaning here is that in Adam's fall, sinned we all. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. And we have to admit, in our culture, this really rubs against us. And it raises a lot of questions like, first off, is this even fair? Is this even fair that God would hold us accountable for what Adam did, not necessarily accountable for what I do? That seems unfair. We'll start here just in our culture. We all live under a rule of representative government. Right? We all acknowledge that there are people who represent us at a government level who make decisions, whether we like it or not, that either negatively or positively affect us today. Right? So start there. That you can kind of understand this pr principle just based on the culture that we live in. But second, I want you to consider this. Would you answer this understanding of original sin or would you view this idea of corporate accountability any different if you were born, say, in East Asia or North Africa or say you were born in the ninth century? The reason I bring that up is because what our concept of fairness often is is profoundly shaped by the culture and the time that we live in. For instance, people of other cultures and centuries had a much easier time accepting this understanding of original sin and this understanding of corporate guilt. I think uh, um, Tim Keller put it well. He said, many other cultures accept the idea that the individual is part of the whole family, tribe, or clan, and not a whole in and of himself. See, in the West, in the 21st century, when it comes to identity and when it comes to sin, our tendency is to think that my sin is my own, affecting only me, and the consequences are mine. But in cultures and in different times, their identities and consequently their view of sin was much more collective. It wasn't just about the individual, it was about the collective. So when my sister sinned, or when my tribesmen did wrong, or when a leader had a moral failure, their action was not seen as purely individual. No, they saw this understanding of collective solidarity. They understood that their action was in some way affecting the community, the nation, the tribe, the race, and the family, and the nation, the tribe, the race, and the family had something to do in a part for that sin. So we need to be careful, right, when we come to a text in the Bible and we say, hey, that's not fair, we have to be quick to allow the Bible to critique our understanding of fairness instead of allowing our understanding of fairness to critique the Bible. Because here's the reality. We live on shifting sand, don't we? Has anybody here believed something now that 10 years ago they had no belief in and they thought was just demonstrably false? Anyone? 
No, no one. Wow. You guys are a lot of right people. <laughs> How about this? How about our culture? Has our culture ever believed anything 10 years ago that it just thinks is completely wrong now? Anybody seen that in culture? Yeah. And the only way to escape my culture is better than yours or my understanding of fairness is better than yours is to have a standard that's ultimate, that is transcendent of cultures, namely the Bible. So we have to be careful about our understandings of fairness. And the reality is, as good as my explanation of this could be, Paul realizes this. Paul realizes people are going to scratch their heads and say, hold on. No, no, no. My sin is my own. I break the law. I sin. I die as a consequence for breaking that law. And I die as a consequence for being in sin. It's about my personal actions. Adam had nothing to do with it. And Paul says, hold on. That's not exactly the case. Verse 13. He, in response to this man, says... For sin, indeed, was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. And now there's a little bit of a complicated couple of verses here, but what Paul is saying is that between Adam, the first man, and Moses, when the Ten Commandments were given, in between that time frame, there was no law. There were no Ten Commandments. And even though there were no Ten Commandments to break, no sin to be counted to people, people still nonetheless between that time suffered the consequence of sin, which is death. And why is that? It's because they were not being penalized for their sin. They were being penalized for the sin of Adam. They received death, not because they had sinned against God law, God's law and deserved death, but because they sinned in Adam. In Adam's fall, sinned we all, and as a result, they all died. The sin of Adam, the covenant mediator, credited to all his descendants his sin, and now as a result, we're born guilty and sinful, subject to the penalty of judgment, death, and sin, spiritual, physical, and eternal death. So what's the purpose of the law then, somebody would say? Because if the law is not supposed to be about me and my relationship to God, what was the purpose of God giving it? Well, Paul says, the law doesn't make us sinners. No, it just highlights and intensifies what we already are. It adds trespasses to who we already are. He says that in verse 20. Paul says that the law was added to increase the trespass. The law came in to increase the trespass. See, when there was no law, we were sinners, and the fact of death proved that. But God gave us the law in order to increase the trespass, in order to show us just how many ways that we sin against God. It acted like a spotlight on our hearts and on our minds to show us, oh yeah, this is how often I break God's law and how sinful I really am. So think of the first commandment. first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. It merely spotlights and increases our ability to see that we want to de-God God in all of our life. Or the fifth commandment. Fifth commandment, right? Honor those in authority. Honor your mother and your father. It merely spotlights the reality that we want to buck authority even at the most fundamental level, the level between parent and child. Or the tenth commandment, that we deserve, you know, this idea, don't covet. It spotlights the idea that we deserve more than what God's given. We deserve what he has or what she has or what they have. God, why don't I have what they have? 
right? It spotlights and increases the sin and shows us how fallen we really are. In Adam, our first representative, all of his natural descendants, that means every person who's ever lived, me and you, were born into this world, not innocent and good, but guilty and sinful, subject to death. And the law merely spotlights our condition, increasing the trespass and showing us how much danger we're actually in. And here's the thing. This is why this is so crucial, is once you see that contrast, once you see how far you've fallen in Adam and how increased your trespasses are, you can finally see the great contrast of the grace and life that's offered in Jesus and his representation. And we see that in verse 15, that grace and life in Jesus heal our sin and death in Adam. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So Paul's setting up this great contrast here. He's saying in Adam, there is this cascading overflow flood of decay out of his sin. His one act is trespass, verse 15. The result of that trespass is judgment and condemnation, verse 16, which leads ultimately to death, verse 17. That's the direction that Adam is taking all of humanity. The result is that in the representation of Adam, there is this outpouring and cascade of destruction and sin. When Adam ate the fruit, what unfolded was a cascade of murder and war and genocide and incest and idolatry and slavery, rape and kidnapping. And I'm only mentioning the sins from Genesis 1 to Genesis 14. That's not to mention the sins now in the 20th and 21st century. I love this quote from Niall Ferguson. Niall Ferguson's a historian at Stanford University. He says, quote, The hundred years after 1900 were without question the bloodiest century in American history. Conservative estimates, I looked this up, conservative estimates estimate that in those 100 years, 100 million people died. Apart from war. Apart from war. That means we're talking about genocide, murder, mass extermination, and that isn't counting the legalized taking of other people's life either, things like euthanasia and abortion. Abortion, by the way, since 1973 in the United States has claimed 61 million lives, almost as many as the entire amount of 100 million that represented one century of mass violence. One act in an eating of a tree, you get the de-godding of God and all the violence and sin that cascades from it, leading to death, physical, spiritual, and eternal death. But enter the contrast in Jesus. The contrast in Jesus is that the free gift, verse 15, that free gift 
is Jesus himself. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the gift of God and his one act, his one act is contrasted to Adam's one act. In Adam, the trespass meant the breaking of God's covenant. In Christ, in his obedience, you have the fulfillment of God's covenant, a perfect obedience that ultimately led Jesus to the cross. See, whereas Adam took from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, Jesus himself was hung on a tree. And to die, not just for the sins of that one man, Adam, but notice what he says. He says, it's to flow over, it's abounding grace that covers the many trespasses. Verse 16. The many trespasses, which means not just the result of Adam's rebellion, but the result of all of our little rebellions that take place after Adam's rebellion. You know, it was just my birthday a couple weeks ago, and I was thinking, I just turned 31, and I was thinking of all the sin that I could remember when I was born to the time that I turned 31. And I'm talking sexual sins, serious cheating and lying, backstabbing of loved ones, trying to make myself look good in front of others at the expense of other people. And I can only imagine and think, my God, what am I capable of in my next 31 years? And I say, thank God that the free gift of Jesus Christ abounds not only over the sins of my past or my sins present, but the sins that I'm going to commit in the future that I shudder to think what I'm capable of in doing. But God's grace abounds. And Jesus' sacrifice his grace abounds even over the trespasses that continue to increase day after day after day and after day over every single one of us. His grace abounds. It washes over them. It completely erases them, past, present, and future, which means you can't lose your salvation because it wasn't yours to begin with. It was earned by Jesus. Grace abounds even over the increase of sin. And I love what Paul finishes on. He says that this grace abounds even to the ultimate end, even to death. The ultimate consequence of sin is defeated in Jesus' one act. And today we talk about death, right? And we say, oh, it's just a part of life. We say, it's natural. You know, death is what it is. It's just something that we have to do. It's a rite of passage. And in one sense, that's right, in the sense that death is normal. We're all going to die. You heard it here first. But in another sense, it's flat wrong. Death is not normal and it is not natural. It is the most abnormal and unnatural thing that's ever been introduced into God's good creation. That's why in verse 17 it says that death reigned. It reigned. That's a term that personifies a king, right? Death is pictured as this sovereign king calling the shots. Death is not a democratic process. We don't get a say in it. No, it's a sovereign king who, regardless of equal representation or checks and balances of a government system, claims who it wants, and it claims every single human person, including us. It is completely unnatural and abnormal because he shouldn't be reigning. Remember this picture that my wife held? She still has it. We were looking at it uh, a couple months ago, and it's a picture of her 
at about age 16 with her aunt and her uncle who were in a hospital room who had just given birth to a stillborn baby, and Hannah is holding this stillborn. And when you see that, you realize this isn't normal. That's not natural. I recently <laughs> listened to this lecture. It was a, a lecture from a doctor at Northwestern University, right? One of the premier hospitals in all the world. And he gave a lecture entitled, Death, Inevitable or Avoidable? And friends, medical science is a great thing. It's a great tool. It's one of the greatest advances in modern society. But it can only go so far. It can't bring the dead to life. But where medical science ends, Jesus begins. Where medical science ends, Jesus begins. In verse 17, Paul kind of ends on this note. He says, for if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus, during his life, actually raised people from the dead. He took dead bodies in the tomb and raised them back to life to demonstrate he has power over death. He did this even to his best friend, one of his best friends, Lazarus. And there's this phenomenal play. It's by Eugene O'Neill. It's called Lazarus Laughed. And it's this, you know, fictional play of Lazarus, and he's walking down uh, Roman streets. And Caligula, who's the emperor during the time, is going around to Christians, and he's saying, if you don't recant your belief in Jesus, you will die. And he goes up to Lazarus and says that very thing, and Lazarus just begins chuckling. He just begins laughing in the emperor's face. And the emperor's like, I don't think you understand what I said. And he just starts laughing more. And then finally, he grabs Lazarus and says, Lazarus, do you understand? If you believe in Jesus, you will die. And Lazarus bursts out laughing. And he looks at Caligula and finally he says, Caligula, hasn't anybody told you death is dead? Death is dead. Because Jesus didn't just raise Lazarus back to life. He also, once he was dead, was resurrected back to life himself. Jesus rose again from the dead, was resurrected, and he himself put death to death. He himself and all those who are in him now can look at death and say, you are dead. Where medical science ends, Jesus begins. And if you are in Jesus under his representation, grace abounds even to the grave. Even to the grave. This week, you need a representative. You need a representative and you have a representative. And it is not Joe Biden and Donald Trump. It is Jesus. And if you find yourself in him, no matter what the results of this election, you can laugh in the face of death. You can laugh in the face of any challenge that God throws your way because grace abounds even to death for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this message. Thank you for this great truth that we get to be reminded of in Jesus' life and in his death on the cross on our behalf. And God, we pray that we would find ourselves in Jesus more and more, especially as we come to this table where you're represented and where you seal all of your saving benefits to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.